on WHMP. This is Indeed Talk, the talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we will have later for you in this hour an interview with the executive director of Safe Passage, as most of you know. Top story in today's Daily Hampshire Gazette, Safe Passage Closes Shelter. We'll have that story for you in just a few, well, later on in the hour. I would like to begin by introducing you to the author of a new book, uh, Nisha McSweeney. The new book is titled The West, A New History in 14 Lives. Uh, Nisha McSweeney is a professor of classical archaeology at the University of Vienna. She's been a researcher at Harvard's Center for Hellenic Studies. She's won numerous academic awards and has been a commentator on both BBC television and radio. It's a big book, Professor McSweeney, and it has a really interesting way of not looking at the great man theory of history. And I was wondering if you would be kind enough to share with us a bit of an explanation for the 14 lives that you looked at. And at the same time, to give our listeners a bit of a sense of what the book sounds like. So thank you so much for joining us. And perhaps we could start by having you read a bit of an explanation. I'm looking at the uh, end of the chapter titled The Importance of Origins. Absolutely. First of all, Bill, thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to have the opportunity to come and talk about this book. Um, yes, yeah, so when it came to choosing these lines, it was a very difficult uh, choice to make, of course. Um, and the, the way I've described it in the book itself is, is as follows. These are, of course, not the only lives I could have chosen to focus on in this book. And I'm sure that each of you would choose differently were you to embark on a similar project. They do nonetheless serve to make my point. They demonstrate that the grand narrative of Western civilization is both manifestly untrue and ideologically bankrupt. They illustrate at the scale of the individual human why we must jettison this grand narrative once and for all. And they suggest a richer and more diverse set of historical lineages in which we should seek a new version of Western history to replace it with. You say... Oh, I hope that just gives a little flavor. <laughs> I appreciate the directness of what you wrote. And I would like you to tell us a bit more about what you mean when you say that the grand narrative of Western civilization is both manifestly untrue and ideologically bankrupt. Can we take those one at a time? Manifestly untrue? Yeah. What do you mean by that? Absolutely. So... Um, the grand narrative, as um, I'm, I've labelled it, of Western civilization, is this story that we have that the West's history runs in a straight, unbroken, golden line from Plato to NATO, from its birth in ancient Greece right up to the present day. Now, that is manifestly untrue because we have for decades known that various bits of this, um, this golden thread don't quite join up. We do know, for example, that during the medieval period, a lot of classical scholarship and learning was lost in Europe, and it only had to be rediscovered later. So that the line was broken um, at various points. We've known that for a long time. We also know that there have been a lot of um, other influences on the West from various different parts of the world, so that we've had influences 
from all the continents um, which feed into modern Western identity. And yet these don't always appear in our canonical story of from Plato to NATO. So a lot of these individual elements, um, we've known about them for a long, long time. And if, if I were to describe to you exactly, for example, like that we know that we, we lost a lot of classical scholarship um, during the uh, medieval period, I'm sure you and many of your listeners would, would agree because you kind of know that. But yet, when it comes to the grand overarching narrative, we kind of lose sight of that and we paper over that, even though we know the individual facts aren't always as solid. So that's the first bit. That, that is a helpful synopsis. I would appreciate it if you would then go to the second characterization, ideologically bankrupt. What do you mean by that? Yes, now this one's a bit, it's a bit more tenuous or a bit more um, debatable, um, shall we say. Um, the idea of this narrative from Plato to NATO, it, it didn't always exist. So what I seek to do in this book is pin down the moment when this narrative itself came into being. Um, and we find that it comes into being over the course of the 16th to the 18th centuries, and it really crystallizes in the mid-18th century with the American Revolutionary Movement. Um, however, against the backdrop as well um, of European imperialism and expansion, the story of from Plato to NATO did a lot of political work, and it was used to justify um, a lot of things which we in the modern West no longer believe to be core to Western identity. So it was absolutely used to justify imperialism um, and racism and, and oppression of various people, both internally and externally. And I think in the 21st century, those aren't principles which we in the modern West still subscribe to, even though they may have been principles which the West of the 17th or 18th century did subscribe to. And so what I'd like to argue in this book is that what we should be doing now is developing a view of Western history which does fit the modern West and our modern Western principles, not the outdated principles of the 18th century, but the principles that we believe in today. We are speaking with Professor uh, Nisha, Nisha McSweeney. Her new book is The West, A New History in 14 Lives. To uh, continue on this theme that you were just discussing is the famous speech uh, by Ronald Reagan about uh, the United States as the city on the hill. Does that reflect this kind of from uh, Plato to NATO uh, mythology? Oh, you know, Bill, you, this is where you've got me where I have to profess my ignorance of that speech, but it sounds like it's a really important one. Is this a speech where he feed discusses uh, Western history as well, he, descri he, he describes he describes the United States as the 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 shining city on the hill. American exceptionalism. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, no, it, it, yeah. I think this this might in that case that might well encapsulate it. That um, the idea that the America is the culmination of um, all of Western history. Um, leading up from antiquity um, unto the modern day. And I think that people in other parts of the West, um, especially where I live and work in Central Europe, might, might want to see a greater part for 
maybe Central and Western Europe in his vision of Western history, for example. Um, so I think that that would be that sounds like it would be an example of it. I was interested that I did not know most of the 14 individuals whose lives you describe. And I was particularly chagrined that I did not know, had not really heard of Joseph Warren, a really interesting person in the American Revolution. Could you share that story with our listeners, please, and tell us why you chose him as one of the 14 people you chose to, whose lives you chose to focus on in terms of telling the story of this Western canon? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I did want, when telling the story, not to always look for the most obvious uh, characters, as you said, Bill, maybe to avoid the, the great man theory. But Joseph Warren just seemed like he was indeed a great man who was perhaps not as well, is not as well known now as some of his um, colleagues and compatriots during the American Revolution. So he was a physician in revolutionary Boston. He started work as a doctor. He did amazing work uh, handing out free inoculations against the smallpox. Um, but in the context of the revolution, he was, um, he was a publicist. He was a wordsmith. He was somebody who specialized in writing speeches, in writing pamphlets, um, in, in publicizing and getting the message of the revolutionary movement across. And that was his um, a great skill. Now, this I was really interested in um, because I'm interested in people who write about history. And he was somebody who went back to the ancient world and the classical world time and time again to draw inspiration for his vision of what um, the future of America could hold an independent America. Um, and he did some really sophisticated things when it came to uh, thinking about Western history, exactly as you say, kind of running from the old world and culminating in the new world of, um, of North America. Um, but he had a, a, the key with him is he was not just kind of a dry, dusty old scholar like, like some of us, perhaps. <laughs> he had... He really had a knack for communicating with people, um, and that was what made him so successful um, as a public speaker, as a songwriter as well. He had a, a great way with words, and and that's why I kind of was so excited to find out about him. I felt that he could, I could not skip him over when it came to selecting people for this book. In in the part of the book uh, about Warren, you write about George Washington, and you say this. For all his opposition to British imperialism and imperial cruelties, Washington had no qualms about characterizing the newly independent United States as a, quote, rising empire. Could you try to square that circle for us, please? How does the United States as a new country assert that it is a rising empire at the same time it is at war against the most prominent empire. I, th I think this is also one of the the interesting slippages that we have in the rhetoric used by the revolutionary movement. They have this rhetoric of, of freedom and anti-imperialism, but at the same time, they have a rhetoric of rising imperialism too. Um, and I imagine this is partly something that they were trying to work out for themselves 
as well. This was something new that they were doing. Um, it was, you know, they didn't have a template or a playbook to, to go with. Um, and so when they were trying to develop their revolutionary rhetoric, um, that they, they I would have imagined drawn on existing rhetoric of, of, um, of imperialism and power in order to develop their own. But it was a, a contradiction at the heart of the revolutionary movement, and it was a problem. And this was something which was picked up at the time by 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 critics, by um, people who were um, by in the British commentators who were against them. Um, that this that this was a kind of an ideological quandary that they needed to resolve. Well, the quandary, as you point out, is that it's not it's not just a uh, uh, intriguing conceptual problem. It is the reality of this new nation that is founded in significant measure on slavery and on subjugating uh, indigenous peoples. I mean, that sounds a lot like what the uh, British were doing across the globe as as their empire expanded. I, I, I cannot reconcile this, and maybe there is no way to do it, but I'd appreciate your thoughts. I think you're. I think you're right, Bill. There is no good way to reconcile this, and the British absolutely did this too. They wanted to have it both ways, so they would talk about themselves as if they were um, comparing themselves to the Roman um, Empire of old, and, and using that, especially as um, rhetoric, to justify their imperialism in places like India. But in the same breath. Um, when they're talking to a different audience within Britain themselves, they would um, describe themselves as compare themselves to the ancient Britons who were the subjects of empire. Um, oh, Bill, can you still hear me? I think yes, we can hear you just fine. Thank you. Oh, right, we're still here. Sorry, sorry. Um, they, they would all describe themselves as the subjects of empire as well. So there, there was a kind of almost a, a, a schizophrenia in, in the way the British mindset was working, especially in the 19th century, how they would describe their own empire. Um, so I think there is there's another ideological problem there, and that's never resolved. Um, that's never that's, that's there is not a solution. <laughs> no way to to reconcile these two things. I think what we can do. Um, as historians looking back, is acknowledge that that, um, that that there is that disjoint, an ideological disjoint. And when we see that ideolog- ideological disjoint, to be able to call it out when it's there. You write in your book, uh, near the conclusion, or, that history is not, in the words attributed to British historian Arnold Toynbee, just one damn thing after the other. You, you have an arc to this story, um, and you contest the major hypothesis about how Western civilization is in and of itself singular and uh, romantic and an ideal. And okay, there may have been a few uh, glitches along the way, but it is really kind of pure and noble. Um, and I'm wondering if you think that is something that serves a purpose today as much as it did as this narrative came into being during the 18th and 19th centuries? Um, I think you're absolutely right. Um, These narratives still serve a purpose today. I think um, a lot of people who might still want to hold on to the old narrative are also trying to hold on to an old reality of what the West was. And the West is is no longer the same thing as it was in in the late 19th century. Um, And 
so holding on to the the stories is, is a way of holding on to that old identity. And I think for many people who argue against this from Plato to NATO history, they're also trying to argue something new for the identity of the West as well. They want to see the, like, the modern West as, as being something fundamentally different and they want to change it. Um, but actually, I, I'd like to almost propose that we are that we, we continue to be a bit romantic um, and uh, and celebratory about the history of the West, but not the factually incorrect history of the West, which champions purity. We should be celebrating the real history of the West, which is not about purity. It's it's entirely about innovation. It's about novelty. It's about um, creativity. Um, and it's about kind of cultural transfer. And I think that's something I've been trying to capture with these stories, that um, Western history is so dynamic. Um, and if there's one constant that grows through it, that weaves its way through it, it is that ability for uh, change, that ability for innovation, that ability for transformation. And I think that is something that is at the heart of the West, which we should be, which is, we, we can rightly be romantic about, I think. We are speaking with Nisha McSweeney. She is a professor of classical archaeology at the University of Vienna. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back. We're going to continue this conversation about the West, a new history in 14 lives. We'll be right back. In a fake empire. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Hearing the verdict and hearing the words racial animus were extremely painful for, certainly for myself and for the women and men of the Greenfield Police Department who really do go to work every day to serve the people of Greenfield. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Oh, the places you'll go. This Dr. Seuss book might be the quintessential graduation gift. Broadside has it, plus other books for grads. Like What Now by Ann Patchett, Navigate Your Stars by Jesmyn Ward. Toni Morrison's The Source of Self-Regard, Selected Essays, Speeches, and Meditations. Browse Broadside Bookshop for inspiring books for graduates. How about Devotions, The Selected Poems of Mary Oliver? How about Rough Sleepers by Tracy Kidder? Or Cheryl Strayed's Tiny Beautiful Things? Browse Broadside, buy a book for a grad. At Mountain View Farm in East Hampton, we have been growing beautiful, certified organic produce exclusively for our farm share members since we started. And we have been voted best local CSA in the Valley for the last 15 years running. Included in your weekly pickup, you can also enjoy our field of you-pick flowers and herbs all season long. And you can shop in our farm store, which features many wonderful local products. We offer shares for all size households. Sign up at mountainviewfarmcsa.com. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. 
You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Nisha McSweeney, professor of classical archaeology at the University of Vienna, whose new book is The West, A New History in 14 Lives. We had continued our conversation during the break, and Buzz, I thought you made a really interesting point worth sharing, definitely worth sharing, with those who are with us this morning. I was listening to the professor talk about George Washington uh, aspiring to an empire, and you asking why is that when we're breaking away from the tyranny of empire. And I remembered that New York's slogan, I guess, the, the Empire State came from George Washington saying, New York will be the seat of the empire. I learned that in fifth grade when I was learning the slogans of all 50 states for a test. And proudly so, the seat of the empire. Not something to be were ashamed of or embarrassed about or concerned with. That was something to be proud of, right? If, if there was a model for New York, it was the Empire State Building. And, and it is the sta- still the motto of New York. I would like to go back, if I might, uh, Professor McSweeney, and ask you about the place of religion and, in particular, Christianity with regard to this concept of the West and uh, both in terms of the things we have been discussing that are uh, subject to, obviously, great criticism, the imperialism, the colonialism, the racism, um, as well as those that I think are rightfully Uh, to be applauded, which are the innovation and the creativity. Uh, Where does Christianity, where does religion fall, and what role does it play in terms of the the arc of this story? Um, Well, it's really, it's interesting because the role of religion goes up and down at different points in time. So almost at the, uh, the the peak of the arc, as it were, the kind of the, the curve of it, um, Christianity is really important um, from, you know, in from the, uh, the end of the Middle Ages around into the early modern period. It's pretty important. But then it becomes less important over time, um, especially as we move into a much more kind of a secular world after the Enlightenment, after the 18th century. But there is this, there is this kind of several centuries in the middle where um, not just, not Christianity, all of it, but certain types of Christianity are really, really important. So in the high medieval period, you have this kind of epic face-off between the Latin church, which has its headquarters based in Rome, and the, the Greek, what we would now call the Greek Orthodox Church, which is based with the Patriarchate in Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire. And that's the really big axis of um, kind of hatred or conflict is between the, the two churches and between the kind of the Latin West and uh, the Greek East. And that's, if anything, the clash of civilizations which really characterizes that time and culminates in the, you know, the sacking of Constantinople in the Fourth Crusade in uh, 1204. Um, so, so at that point, religion is really important, but it's not all a Christianity. It's only a certain type of Christianity. And then later on, as we move into the early modern period, you've got the splintering of um, Catholicism and various types of Protestantism um, and the the the, the disjoint between the Catholic and the Protestant bits of Europe then becomes another fault line um, um, over which people are fighting, literally fighting and killing each other. Um, And the definition of the West, um, Western identity, you have the central Catholic Europe trying to define itself as kind of Western um, Christendom, sorry, Christendom, um, against the Protestants who they characterize as being heretics 
like the Muslims, and they they see the 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 Ottoman Muslim Empire and the Protestants of Northern Europe as more or less the same thing. Um, and I think so. Religion becomes really important in that context too. And what we don't have at any point is a totally unified, totally coherent Christendom encompassing all the different Christian groups, um, which is unitary and which is, is together. They're always fighting against each other. Um, but over time, as I said at the start, um, all of that becomes less important because there's a move towards greater secularism with the Enlightenment in the 18th century and um, religion tends to become less important after then. We have been speaking with Nisha McSweeney. Her new book is The West, A New History in 14 Lives, 14 Lives, many of whom I suspect you have not heard of, but you will be fascinated to read about. I absolutely was. Thank you so much for the book. Thank you for your time. The book is available, of course, at your local independent bookstore, The West, A New History in 14 Lives. Professor McSweeney, thank you so very much for your time, and thank you so very much for this book. Thank you for having me. Watched his wife hang Mary on a tree. He watched his son hang candy canes, all made with red dye number three. He told his niece, It's Christmas Eve. I know our life is not your style. She said, Christmas is. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Educators at Hampshire Regional Schools are taking action as contract negotiations drag on with the district. Teachers at Hampshire Regional High School in West Hampton are taking on a work-to-rule policy that started yesterday, where they work to the letter of their contracts and not a minute or favor more. They made the move when the school committee motioned to take negotiations to a moderator. Among the major sticking points for negotiations, limited salary increases, parental leave, and sick leave. The group of acting teachers will be back outside the high school today before the bell rings to continue to make their case. Safe Passage in Northampton is now closed. The nonprofit organization still plans to provide services and resources to violence survivors, but has decided to close their emergency shelter. Director Marianne Winters tells the Gazette one of the driving factors is the length of time people are staying at the shelter for, which is now 15 months versus the two to three months in the past. Winters says it's no longer a viable option to keep the shelter open. The organization has found housing for the families living there before shutting its doors. Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedegardner is calling the city council's decision to make cuts to various aspects of her proposed budget and send an extra $1.1 million toward the public school system, quote, reckless and irresponsible. There could have been some legitimate case made for a few hundred thousand dollars, but $1.1 million is uh, basically ridiculous. The mayor is now challenging the city council's authority to reallocate the money, claiming that under a 1987 state law, the vote was illegitimate and requires mayoral approval. For today, look for a mixture of sunshine and clouds, highs 70 to 74. Tonight, mostly clear, overnight lows 44 to 48. And the other for Wednesday, sun and clouds, chance for afternoon showers, highs in the upper 70s. I'm 22 New Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. 
El presidente Joe Biden y el principal republicano del Congreso de Estados Unidos, Kevin McCarthy, subrayaron el miércoles su determinación de llegar pronto a un acuerdo para elevar el techo de deuda del gobierno federal de 31.4 billones de dólares y evitar un incumplimiento económicamente catastrófico. Después de un enfrentamiento de meses, el presidente demócrata y el presidente de la Cámara de Representantes acordaron el martes negociar directamente un acuerdo. Se debe llegar a un acuerdo y ser aprobado por ambas cámaras del Congreso antes de que el gobierno federal se quede sin dinero para pagar sus cuentas tan pronto como el 1 de junio. Vamos a unirnos porque no hay alternativa, dijo Biden a los periodistas en la Casa Blanca, diciendo que acortaría su viaje a Asia y regresaría a Washington el domingo, pero que las discusiones a nivel de personal continuarían en Washington. El límite debe levantarse regularmente porque el gobierno gasta más de lo que recauda en impuestos. Biden partió el miércoles para la cumbre del Grupo de los Siete de Líderes Mundiales de viernes a domingo en Hiroshima, Japón. En otras informaciones, el gobernador de Montana, Greg Gianforte, firmó el miércoles una legislación para prohibir que TikTok de propiedad china opere en el estado para proteger a los residentes de la supuesta recopilación de inteligencia por parte de China, lo que convierte a Montana en el primer estado de Estados Unidos en prohibir la popular aplicación de videos cortos. Montana prohibirá que las tiendas de aplicaciones de Google y Apple ofrezcan TikTok dentro del estado, pero no impondrá ninguna sanción a las personas que usen la aplicación. La prohibición entrará en vigencia el 1 de enero de 2024 y es casi seguro que enfrentará desafíos legales. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Front page of today's Daily Hampshire Gazette, Safe Passage Closes Shelter. We should note right at the beginning of this segment that there have been some erroneous news reports that indicated that Safe Passage itself uh, was closing. This is absolutely wrong. That's not true. That is not the story. I don't know where that came from, but uh, wherever that bad rumor came from, it's not true. But what is true is Safe Passage Closes Shelter. We have with us the executive director of Safe Passage, Marianne Winters. She has been the executive director for the past 12 or so years. And I want to ask the question, begin with the question that uh, occurred to me when we began, uh, when I began reading the Gazette this morning, which is what is going to happen to the people who need emergency shelter? Marianne, can you help us with that, please? This morning, which is what is going to happen? Oh, Marianne, do you have your you have your uh, computer on or your radio? I think that's why we're so getting this we feedback. Made the decision to work individually with each family who was in shelter. Um, I have my phone on. Just the phone? I should mute that. Let's try that. Just the phone? Yes. Let's try that. Okay. Okay. 
Can you talk to us, Marianne? Are you there? <laughs> well, I guess technology has failed us completely at this point. <laughs> and it was just a regular phone. Goodness gracious. Well, we can't, we can't blame Skype for this one. Um, no, but we can okay, talk Bill, about... I, hello, Bill. I am back. Okay, good. And only, okay, only one of you, and not without the delay. Much better. Okay. Help us understand this. Marianne Winters, uh, Executive Director of Safe Passage. Safe Passage closes shelter. What is going to happen? What are the people going to do, mostly women and children, who need emergency shelter? Where are they going to go now? Well, we, you know, the, we have been working on, on this transition now for a few months. We ended up with a need for, to temporarily close the shelter back in March due, due to some really important renovations and repairs that we needed to do. At that time, we placed people in local hotels. And then we worked specifically with each family on on their housing. So we really accelerated their housing options, worked with um, our state coalition, worked to house folks. And so at this point, of the six families who were we were housing um, when the shelter building actually started getting repaired, um, only one is left now in a hotel. And it is about within two weeks or so about to move into a their own apartment. So is that so, what's going to happen now? I mean, you're still going to get calls. Safe Passage is still going to get calls. I have this emergency. I need to get out of my house. I have am in this yes. abusive situation. Are, is Safe Passage, yes. Safe Passage still going to be able to help these people? Yes, absolutely. What? So we will always maintain the ability to do a short-term emergency stay while people are waiting to either get into the shelter network. And I should say, by the way, that you know, this this was a decision for our local shelter. The conditions at the shelter as a congregate living shelter are just inadequate for a whole family living in a single room for almost a year and a half on average. And the shelter network will still have the full range of options and, and beds. Um, the Department of Public Health will be rebidding these, and hopefully they will go to a place you know, a local place in Western Mass where they have some some better facilities that really lend itself to longer-term stays. So apartments, uh, apartment-style living, a semi-congregate shelter. So the availability of emergency shelter will still be there, and that is not a loss. What is a gain for Hampshire County is that we will be turning our focus to reaching people earlier, working with them on economic sustainability and specific housing, um, and we hope earlier. So our new, um, our new economic and housing initiative would assure that we would include a lot of outreach so that we would, could get the message out that this, the earlier, if you know that your relationship is, is dangerous, is feeling unhealthy, and you think you need to make a change, get, a, get in touch with us early. Because at that point, the earlier during a domestic violence escalation that someone engages with us within our community program, the more of their resources that they still have available. When people come to emergency shelter and they've already lost their home, they've lost their job, they've you know, been isolated from friends and family, the climb back up to independence and into 
um, housing is much steeper and takes a lot longer. So our message with this decision is that, you know, our community program continues to be vibrant, dynamic, um, very impactful. And the focus, you know, shelter traditionally in Northampton had a maximum capacity of working with six families at any one time. And with the long stays, it was very infrequent that we had even an opening. Our community program works with about 200 people at any one time, including legal advice and counsel, um, emotional support, safety planning, um, and now accelerated um, housing assistance and um, economic, economic preparation for transitions. Marianne Winters, Executive Director of Safe Passage, tell us this. Was the impetus for closing the shelter because the this congregate uh, communal kind of living didn't work for families with very different needs? Was it uh, motivated because you couldn't serve enough people? Was it motivated for financial reasons? What was the real underlying uh, impetus for this decision? Well, Bill, you just named kind of a trifecta of, of reasons. Um, serving fewer people for longer periods of time is very expensive, and there's a structural deficit in the funding that we get through the Department of Public Health because of the size of our shelter. So we need to bring in unrestricted resources. We have been bringing in unrestricted resources about $100,000 to $200,000 per year, depending on any other you know, one-time foundation grants that we can get. So, yes, there's a financial um, and an organizational stability issue. There's a numbers. You know, we've been looking at the data in terms of clients. When I started, the first year that I started 12 years ago, we worked with about 86 people So, um, in, in one year. Um, now, we this past year, we've worked with about 12 people. So... You know, and part of that is COVID, but um, not all of it is COVID. So we started seeing this trend develop years ago. And, yes, the congregate living situation, first of all, is was extremely difficult and impossible when the COVID <coughs> pandemic started. So we rehoused people, um, and unfortunately that meant a lot of different locations in order to create some ability to do safe, you know, safe distancing. And when we, when we returned to shelter, that um, safe distance was still, um, still needed. So in a congregate shelter, it's nearly impossible to prevent outbreaks like this. It's also impossible to regain a footing on your life and on your family life. Um, you know, because you're living with other people who you don't know, who have no reason to be together except that you both happen to be, not happen to be, you both are victims right. of domestic violence. Right. That, that you know, the lack that commonality of goals and even the impetus to actually create community, because it's a relatively short-term period of time, it, um, you know, we talked with our, you know, we, we talked with the shelter guests that we were working hard to, you know, to house and, Overall, they said, you know, I just want to get back to some kind of a normal life. Um, and it's really hard when there's conflicts arising between, you know, kids, between guests, between guests and families, um, and with, with staff, 
it's very hard to maintain the kind of community that would be needed for congregate living when that's not the intent of people who um, who joined us in congregate living. Safe. I think a congregate shelter would be amazing for people for whom that arrangement is therapeutic and healing and empowering. Think about you know people with developmental disabilities who get to know each other and build that support or you know young adults aging out of foster care, for example, just two populations. So the the shelter itself will continue to um, house people. We'll be working with other nonprofits. We haven't identified that yet, but it will continue to be um, affordable housing for people from Hampshire County, for Northampton. So in some ways, um, you know, Hampshire County gains additional affordable housing for people who really, really need it in a congregate setting and a focus on preparing people for housing that would include fighting for housing at the public policy level. You know, we know that change, any kind of change, requires working at that individual level, but it's it's almost senseless to not work on deep community collaborations and do the activism work that we need to really push on increasing affordable housing, making making benefits easier to apply for, um, supporting people in what they do have available to them. Marianne Winters, let me ask you this. Bottom line yes. of this, you've, you've given us a really good explanation. I really appreciate it. There is still a need for emergency shelter. And if p- people in need, mostly women and children, in need of emergency shelter, call a, a safe passage, they still will be provided with the uh, resources necessary to find that emergency shelter? Yes, absolutely. I think the best thing to do for people who wonder about where they're going to live next, who need that emergency shelter, to call us, get connected with a community counselor. They can do safety planning, resource development, um, help you think through what your options are, help you prepare for a move, thinking about like what you're going to be what you need to bring, what your children need, where are you going to go? Um, and if that means going to another part of the state or staying in western Massachusetts, you know, we can help. And Safe, you know, pa- safe Passage will continue to provide that service. Yes, absolutely, but in an enhanced way. Okay, we're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Marion Winters, who is the Executive Director of Safe Passage. Thank you so very much for your time. Thanks for all your work. As you know, I've been a big supporter of Safe Passage for many years. I know you have, Dylan. Thank you. And will continue to be so. We'll be right back. Try imagining a place where it's always safe and warm. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. 
you love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community, and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. Kick off your summer by joining Pioneer Valley Fiberglass Pools for their grand opening event at their brand new showroom in Westfield on June 1st from 11 to 1, starting with a ribbon cutting by the mayor. Enjoy food and refreshments or even take a dip in one of their many pools on display. Come join the fun and explore the possibilities for your own backyard. Pioneer Valley Fiberglass Pools has been in business for over 20 years and offers free virtual site evaluations and competitive estimates. See you June 1st from 11 to 1. Check out PVF Pools com for more info your oasis awaits this is jessica from fitness together in northampton and amherst and while i know we provide next level personal training don't just take it from me i may be getting older but i'm getting stronger too with the help of my trainer at fitness together i'm deadlifting 20 pounds more than i weigh now that's exciting but the best part is how my fitness has improved my mental outlook and feeling of safety don't let age get in the way. Fitness Together offers private workout suites at our location or virtual training at yours. Contact us to begin the journey back to what you love. Fitness Together, Amherst or Northampton. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are joined by Kevin Kelly, who is the co-founder, was the co-founder of Wired, the magazine, and... He is still with the magazine, has a position as Senior Maverick with Wired. He is the author of numerous best-selling books about technology, and he is here with us today to talk about something else, because he has a new book titled Excellent Advice for Living, Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier. Now, Kevin Kelly, uh, I want you to know that you have with you today uh, two people who, how to put this, are older than you. Not a lot older than you, but somewhat older than you. So, but we're still living. <laughs> and yeah. you start this book, Excellent Advice for Living, Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier, with a kind of epiphany of what happened to you at your 68th birthday. So why don't you share that with us, if you would, please? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I'm like you. I'm still vertical and very happy about that. I um, just started jotting down little bits of, of advice that I had not given to our kids, who are now young adults, that I wished I had because I kind of realized that I wished I had been told these by my parents when I was younger or anyone else around me. So I started to jot these down, little sentences that I would kind of compress an entire book of wisdom into a little aphorism, a little proverb, a little kind of short, tweetable saying, and that I then gifted to them on my birthday. I had about 68 of them. I was 68 years old. I thought, man, it was perfect. Um, I'll do an Irish or Hobbit version of a birthday where you give presents on your birthday and get, out, get them. And that it seemed to, they, I appreciated them. And then it kind of went viral and I started doing that every year for, for, for a number of years until I had 450 of them. What made you think that any 
offspring was going to pay any attention <laughs> any more at this age than at some previous age. What possessed you to have that idea? My advice to my kids would have been, don't listen to a word I've ever said. Okay. Well, exactly. And, and what happens is a lot of people are gifting the book because they said, my kids don't listen to anything I say. However, they'll listen to someone else saying it, so you give them the book. So, like, okay, they're not going to listen to you, but they might listen to me because I'm not your parent. Well, I in for a dime, in for a dollar on this one, Kevin Kelly. Uh, how's that going with, uh, well, either your offspring or others? Anyone taking your advice at this point? <laughs> yeah, so I asked my kids about the book afterwards, and they said, you know, um, you didn't actually ever say this, but you did teach it to us through your actions. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's a success. Well, yeah, uh, if it's true, how much do you, how much credibility did you give your kids on that one? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, um, I, I've, I've come to, to trust them. They're old enough to, that we've gone through that phase, and they're kind of responsible for what they say. So I think they were not just trying to make me look good. Um, I, 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 I think I also noticed from, from their own behavior that they seem to have taken up some of these lessons uh, um, even in their career, um, their, their wisdom in their investment, using money. So, so I, I, I trust them. Let me ask you this. Um, there are a few things here that really did strike me. And, uh, yes, there are aphorisms, sort of words to live by. We uh, never do self-help books on this show. But there are a few things here that really struck me. And one was very straightforward. It says, listening well is a superpower. And that stuck with me, because listening well is exactly that. And I'm wondering why you wanted to include that aphorism in particular. I was born out of my own experience. In, um, I've often been called a great conversationalist, even though I didn't say anything, like a dinner party, because I was actively listening. And listening is, the active listening, the superpower is where you're actually, you're trying to understand someone you ask the appropriate questions to have them say more. So one of the bits of advice I have is the rule of three. When you're actively listening, the rule of three is that you, um, after someone said something about why they did something or what they're doing or what they believe, you ask them to go deeper, and then they give you their answer. And then you ask them a third time, like, okay, well, go even further. What's behind that? And that third level is the level that's the most honest, the most truthful. And so it, the, kind of, the person almost needs you to help them get there. And so they can't sort of say it on their own. They actually need a partner to be actively listening. And so that's, I came out of my own experience in, in you know, being married <laughs> for 35 years and having three kids and being an editor at a magazine you kind of want to be actively listening. The magazine is wired. How old are your children? My youngest is 26. My oldest is about 33. And I have a daughter who's, have, uh, who's 31. This is, this is Buzz, Kevin Kelly. So I'm wondering, uh, we only have a couple of minutes, but um, what is being... You call yourself a maverick, a senior maverick at Wired Magazine. Ah, they gave him that title, Buzz. Well, <laughs> so can you connect <laughs> yeah. the dots for me between this book and that? 
Right. So, so, so one of my bits of advice, well, well, here, here's what I say. One of the bits of advice from the book is don't aim to be the best. Aim to be the only. The best is sort of a small, occupied, there can be only one person who's number one, you know, one best uh, golfer, one best, uh, uh, you know, magician, one best uh, accountant. Aim to be the only. Aim to be something on your own path where it's much more wide open, where there isn't as much competition, where you are more of a maverick. And um, there, that's not occupied. It's wide open. Um, It's a much more difficult thing to attain. It may take most of your life because when you're starting off and young like me, you don't really know what you're better at than most people. It's a long kind of a journey. But if you can head in that direction of doing something that nobody else can do as well or doesn't want to do or is not as interested, then you have much more likely to be able to invent your own kind of success. We have been speaking with Kevin Kelly, who is the co-founder of Wired Magazine. His new book is Excellent Advice for Living, Wisdom I Wish I Had Known Earlier. Here are two pieces of the book that I want to conclude with that I find really helpful. First, you don't have to attend every argument you're invited to. And second, you can't reason someone out of a notion they didn't reason themselves into. Wow, you're the best Kevin Kelly I know. <laughs> we leave it there. Excellent advice for living wisdom. I wish I'd known earlier, Bill, by Kevin Kelly, available at your local independent bookstore. Thanks so much, Kevin. Really appreciate your time and the book. It was his life. It was his life. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday local burgers and fries? Correct. They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Local burgers and fries on the corner in Northampton on the main Dragon Keen plus local burgie. Burgers and barbecue in Williamsburg. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Are you an immigrant worried about your future? Do you want to change your life? At Center for New Americans, you can take English classes for free. They help immigrants with jobs, licenses, healthcare, as well as immigration and citizenship. CNA helps you create a better future. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. We've just learned more about the driver accused of ramming his U-Haul into barriers near the White House and making threats against the president and vice president. The Secret Service identifies him as a 19-year-old from Chesterfield, Missouri. Correspondent Nancy Cordes has more. The suspect is in custody. Here's what we know right now. This incident took place around 10 p.m. last night. Video surfaced on social media showing the exact moment when the U-Haul driver tried to ram the truck past the 
barriers near the White House. The same video shows officers removing what appears to be a Nazi flag from the truck. Still no agreement after another round of debt talks between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. CBS's Nicole Killian is on Capitol Hill. He's going to continue to talk to President Biden. He has encouraged the negotiators to continue talking in the hopes that they can craft something. I mean, he said it was really critical that they try to get a deal this week in order to meet that timetable. The deadline's June 1st. McCarthy pledges to meet every day until they reach an agreement. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy has issued a public health advisory warning parents about the dangers of kids on social media. He says it can interfere with a critical phase of brain development and even increase sensitivity to social rewards and punishments. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer has signed a new red flag law that allows family members, police and others to petition judges to remove guns from someone they believe poses an immediate threat to themselves or others. We have heard too many times from those who knew a mass shooter who had expressed concern in advance about that mass shooter's intentions, but weren't able to take any further course of action. Three students were shot and killed at Michigan State University three months ago. A deadly crash triggered a riot in Wales. This was the scene at a housing project on the edge of Cardiff last night. A crash in which two teenagers died triggered a riot, apparently after false rumors spread on social media blaming police for the accident. The rioters through firecrackers, bricks, and obscenities at police trying to restore order. Cars were set on fire. Hours later, burning rubble still filled the streets as terrified residents cowered in their homes. That's Vicki Barker reporting. And an update on the health of an Oscar-winning actor. I'm the dude. So that's what you call me. Big Lebowski's know? Jeff Bridges, who's recovering from non-Hodgkin lymphoma and a severe case of COVID, tells AARP magazine his 12-inch tumor has shrunk to the size of a marble after chemotherapy. The 73-year-old says he came close to dying from COVID two years ago. This is CBS News. Find your next great hire with Indeed. Their hiring platform makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in the same place. Visit Indeed.com credit. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or from a former client? Maybe an outdated news article or sensitive personal information about your family? Search engines don't always get it right. For right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in. One of the most trusted names in online reputation repair. Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top, helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free Reputation Report Card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. That's 800-401-66. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Educators at Hampshire Regional Schools are taking action as contract negotiations drag on with the district. Teachers at Hampshire Regional High School in West Hampton are taking on a work-to-rule policy that started yesterday, where they work to the letter of their contracts and not a minute or favor more. They made the move when the school committee motioned to take negotiations to a moderator. Among the major sticking points for negotiations, limited salary increases, parental leave, and sick leave. The group of acting teachers will be back outside the high school today before the bell rings to continue to make their case. 
Safe Passage in Northampton is now closed. The nonprofit organization still plans to provide services and resources to violence survivors, but has decided to close their emergency shelter. Director Marianne Winters tells the Gazette one of the driving factors is the length of time people are staying at the shelter for, which is now 15 months versus the two to three months in the past. Winters says it's no longer a viable option to keep the shelter open. The organization has found housing for the families living there before shutting its doors. Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedegardner is calling the city council's decision to make cuts to various aspects of her proposed budget and send an extra $1.1 million toward the public school system, quote, reckless and irresponsible. There could have been some legitimate case made for a few hundred thousand dollars, but $1.1 million is um, basically ridiculous. The mayor is now challenging the city council's authority to reallocate the money, claiming that under a 1987 state law, the vote was illegitimate and requires mayoral approval. For today, look for a mixture of sunshine and clouds, highs 70 to 74. Tonight, mostly clear, overnight lows 44 to 48. And the only for Wednesday, sun and clouds, chance for afternoon showers, highs in the upper 70s. I'm 22 New Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. Welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And we are both thrilled, as we always are, to have our Fair Play segment with Duke Goldman on uh, on Tuesday at this time of the month. Hello, Duke Goldman. Hey, Buzz. How are you? Well, change is going to come. Is that true? Well, you know, change comes. You've it... been a busy guy. I have. Tell and... us where you've been and what you've been doing. Well, um, when I was on doing the Fair Play segment last month, I was in the middle of doing research at the Library of Congress looking at the Branch Rickey papers. And for those who may be tuning in for the first time or, you know, aren't as familiar with, Branch Rickey was a significant individual in baseball history for many, many reasons, but most principally because he was the guy who, by signing Jackie Robinson, broke the color barrier that Major League Baseball had put down and reintegrated baseball because baseball did have black players in the 1800s, briefly, okay? So Jackie... He signed him because he was a general manager of... He was a general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, the forerunner of today's Los Angeles Dodgers, uh, only for a few years from 1942 until 1950 when he got pushed out by Walter O'Malley, who was notorious in New York for taking the Dodgers out to the West Coast and abandoning Brooklyn. Um, before that, uh, Ricky had a long career. He was very involved in essentially creating the farm system, and you know he was an innovator all throughout his life. He was the general manager of the St. Louis Cardinals right before he was with the Brooklyn Dodgers uh, for about 20, 23 years, I think. And during that time, he didn't do anything to try to integrate baseball, something that some people would point to and say, well, you know, if he wanted to be a pioneer in civil rights, why did he wait until he went to Brooklyn? Well, he had his reasons, and we'll talk about that. 
Um, but Branch Rickey, in the end, we, we can ask this question, and I was delving into the Branch Rickey papers. My first purpose, I'm writing a biography of Monty Irvin, who was some of the Negro League owners talked about as being potentially the first person to integrate baseball, reintegrate baseball. He came a little bit later, as it turned out, had a major league career, is in the Hall of Fame, and I'm writing his biography, and also looking for evidence to suggest when and whether Monty was approached by Branch Rickey and the Dodgers. Um, so I was doing my due diligence. I already pretty much had the answer, but this is what primary research is about. You go to look at the evidence that was written at the time to try to figure out what was really going on. So there, I was trying to make sure that, in some sense, there wasn't any concrete evidence showing that Ricky had approached Irvin, and there isn't. Okay. Now, I would say, having a legal background, that the preponderance of the evidence clearly showed that uh, Monty Irvin was somebody who was approached at the same time that Jackie Robinson was being signed, but there is, there's no paperwork, there's no documentation. In the course of doing that, though, I'm also looking at the overall story of baseball integration, how it happened and why Branch Rickey made the move to sign Jackie Robinson. So I wanted to read a couple of quotes from him and from somebody else. Branch Rickey said at the time, as far as why he signed Jackie Robinson, he said, and I quote, I don't mean to be a crusader. My purpose is to be fair to all people, and my selfish objective is to win ballgames. So he put it well. It was both things he was doing, right? He wanted fairness. But he really was doing this because he saw an opportunity, you know, all the other owners, all the other racists were going against their own interests and not, and not tapping into this gold mine, if you will, of talent that existed in the Negro Leagues. And Branch Rickey was clearly saying, hey, I'm getting ahead of the curve. I'm building this Brooklyn Dodger team, which had been decimated by World War II, like other teams, and wasn't there as a top team. And I'm going to turn them into a top team by getting the best black players. Duke Coleman, wasn't he worried about the blowback, that there would be a boycott by the white fans and that sort of thing? Yes. Yes, he knew that there were potential problems, but he, he also built a foundation. He went to the Brooklyn Dodgers ownership in 1942, to the board of directors that existed, and he said, look, I want to do this. Are you guys behind me? He got his support. And then they did research. They did scouting. They looked at a lot of ball players. And the truth of the matter, and I think I mentioned something about this last show, they really didn't intend to sign only Jackie Robinson at the beginning. It's, it happened that way. It was kind of accidental. It was brought on by forces they could, could not control. I also want to quote something else, though, which a, a, a lawyer, a, an African-American lawyer named Archibald Carey, wrote in a letter supporting Branch Rickey as somebody who should be inducted into the Hall of Fame. And he said, I think any man responsible for the breaking of the color line is entitled to a place in the shrine of Cooperstown because he has changed the atmosphere for fair play and equal opportunity. Okay. So I think we have to look at it, and then we have to delve deeper. There's a complexity to this whole story, because Branch Rickey may have made fair play possible in terms of bringing black players into Major League Baseball, but he treated the Negro Leagues terribly. In fact, one could argue he was a principal element of the death of the Negro Leagues. How, how so? Well, first of all, he wouldn't pay for the talent. He said the Negro Leagues were a racket, okay? He said they were run... By, by numbers 
men, people who were doing illegal things. And you know what? He was absolutely right. They were. Almost all of the black teams, the black owners, were running numbers games, okay? But you know what? They didn't have any other choice. Those are the only people in the black community who had money, right? You know, it's very easy to point the finger at somebody else when you're not looking at the field on which they played, right? White owners didn't have, and by the way, plenty of the white owners did some really awful things, you know, in their past, and major league owners, okay? But, you know, yes, these, these guys were, if you wanted to call them gangsters, you could, right? Except they weren't really gangsters, you know? And in fact, many of those guys who were doing numbers lotteries were doing things to help the black community, especially during difficult times. And as, as a part of your research, Duke Goldman, does Branch Ricky eventually become a civil rights icon? Yes, very much so. Okay, A deeply conservative man, a lifelong Republican, although I will tell you today, he would say Donald Trump was worthless. I have no doubt in my mind. And he would probably be called a rhino for that. Right? But what he did was he grew. Um, I once heard the great... Uh, New York Times sports writer Bob Lipsight talk about Muhammad Ali being at the press conference when Muhammad Ali said the famous words, I ain't got no quarrel with them Viet Cong. And Lipsight's comment was, when Muhammad Ali said that, he really didn't know what he was saying. He barely knew who the Viet Cong were, but he just knew it was an injustice. But by speaking out that way, it led him to become someone who looked at the social justice aspects in a deeper way. Branch Rickey in 1945 had reasons he wanted to integrate, largely because of a competitive advantage, partly because he had some history of seeing race prejudice. By the time he reached the end of his life in 1965, he was saying things like, we need a few white Dr. Kings in this country who will have the imagination, be full of effort, and unafraid to disregard consequences. And he also said, the dangerous extremist in the present civil rights field is the compromising Christian. I think it's so ironic that, uh, that your theme song for Fair Play is, change is going to come. We all can change. That's right. Abraham Lincoln was a different guy before he became Abraham Lincoln. That's right. And how do people change? They change through exposure. They change through learning. They change through understanding. They change through making mistakes. Branch Rickey made mistakes. He treated the Negro Leagues abominably. Speaking of which, Duke Goldman, you're here in studio and you're wearing a hat that says Negro Leagues are major leagues. Absolutely. Can you talk to us about that a little bit? For sure. Well, one thing I want to do is give a little bit of homework to to the uh, audience. And I would recommend to you that you read an incredible article written by a guy named Stephen Nesbitt that's in The Athletic, which is a really good uh, thing that you can read, a, a great site, on May 11th. And the article was called, The Negro Leagues Are Major Leagues, But Merging Their Stats Has Been Anything But Seamless. Okay? So what happened in 2020 is Major League Baseball announced, not long after the horrible murder of George Floyd, that the Negro Leagues were now, they were going to rectify an injustice, repair the past, if you will, by declaring that six particular leagues that were in black baseball were now to be deemed major leagues. So what's wrong with that? Isn't right. that decades, the greatest talk, thing? We've been talking about the unbelievable level of talent that played in the Negro Leagues. So those people should have been in the major leagues or had the opportunity to be in the major leagues. 
and they were denied that opportunity. So what's wrong with that? What's wrong with it is they did it, A, largely for their own self-serving reasons, and they did it abominably. They did it poorly. They did it without preparation, without forethought, without plans, simply to, A, get credit, B, to deflect from other unsavory aspects of their past, and C, yes, because it was the right thing to do. Could we go back to something we were talking about just a moment ago, and that is the integration of Major League Baseball and Jackie Robinson? Because one point you've made, Duke, is that Branch Rickey and the Brooklyn Dodgers uh, brought Jackie Robinson to their club because there was a serious economic motivation. They wanted not only the competitive advantage, they wanted to have uh, African-Americans in the stands paying for those tickets. Got it. If that's the motivation, why didn't they think through the issue or did they think through the issue? Well, once Jackie Robinson uh, breaks the color barrier, breaks the color line, other clubs are going to do that, and then we won't have this competitive advantage. What, what about that line of thought? Well, Branch Rickey was counting on their racism, right? And he was right, because the other clubs moved with all deliberate speed, shall we say, mm -hmm. hearkening to the language of the Supreme Court in the second Brown v. Board of Education language. So he, he even tried to induce Bill Veck, the owner of the Cleveland Indians, to follow in his footsteps. He saw very early on that the other owners really, first of all, they were getting good things out of the Negro Leagues continuing to operate. They were renting their ballparks to the Negro Leagues. So they, many of them really didn't want to move forward on this. Um, and he realized, you know, I'm going to have an opportunity for a good while because they're not going to follow so quickly in, in what I'm doing. We are going to take a break. I am really enjoying and learning from Duke Goldman, his research in the context of his uh, book, which he's writing about Monty Irvin, about integration in Major League Baseball, his research into Branch Rickey, all spring a thousand questions. But what I want to ask when we come back from the break is why is it important that Major League Baseball recognize, with all deliberate speed, the Negro Leagues was part of Major Leagues? We'll be right back with Duke Goldman right, at, right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Modest, very minimal increase in the police budget, largely uh, due to just regular contractual um, obligations. Holyoke is nothing like Northampton and Greenfield. The quality of life uh, issues, our demographics, very, very different. So I can never compare our police departments. The challenges we have going on in our city are very, very different. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. 
Kick off your summer by joining Pioneer Valley Fiberglass Pools for their grand opening event at their brand new showroom in Westfield on June 1st from 11 to 1, starting with a ribbon cutting by the mayor. Enjoy food and refreshments, or even take a dip in one of their many pools on display. Come join the fun and explore the possibilities for your own backyard. Pioneer Valley Fiberglass Pools has been in business for over 20 years and offers free virtual site evaluations and competitive estimates. See you June 1st from 11 to 1. Check out pvfpools.com for more info. Your oasis awaits. At Mountain View Farm in East Hampton, we have been growing beautiful, certified organic produce exclusively for our farm share members since we started. And we have been voted best local CSA in the Valley for the last 15 years running. Included in your weekly pickup, you can also enjoy our field of you-pick flowers and herbs all season long. And you can shop in our farm store, which features many wonderful local products. We offer shares for all size households. Sign up at mountainviewfarmcsa.com. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday local burgers and fries? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Local burgers and fries on the corner in Northampton on the main Dragon Keen plus local burgie burgers and barbecue in Williamsburg. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Duke Goldman, the Northampton-based Sabres, Society of American Baseball Research expert, baseball historian, author, and researcher at this point because he's writing a new book about Monty Irvin, who, as we were discussing during the break, could have been, very well might have been, Jackie Robinson. He also was really important, although he was not the first black player in the major leagues, but he was a really important player in the major leagues. You're doing the research. You spoke to us last time you were on the show. From You, you were in Washington, D.C., doing research at the uh, uh, Library, Library of, of Congress. Congress. So tell us what you've learned and bring us back to Monty Irvin, if you would, please. So um, the reason I'm writing a biography of Monty Irvin is because Monty Irvin made an impact. And sadly, like in so many other stories in, in our world, the, the first person, the one who is the groundbreaker, is the one who gets all the attention. But the people who followed in their footsteps, who are sometimes just as important or close to as important, get kind of forgotten. And to some degree, even though he is a member of the Baseball Hall of Fame, he was, depending on how you count it, the ninth or 10th African-American in 1949 to get into the major leagues after Jackie. Um, had a short career, led the National League in RBIs in 1951, and had a career in baseball front uh, in the commissioner's office. He spent 16 years as an assistant, first to disastrous commissioner Spike Eckert for about a month or two, and then Bowie Kuhn, whom more people know. He spent 16 years working for Bowie Kuhn. Um, but he also was, he lived till he was almost 97 years old. We actually had him on his 95th birthday on uh, Bill's radio show. Which yes, awesome. right here, right here on HMP. It was such a pleasure to speak to Monty Irvin. It was an honor. And and yes, and that's how I felt. I was lucky enough to meet him and spend an hour with him at his assisted living facility in Houston when he was about 94. And he was just such a gentleman, such a great guy, such a pleasure to be with. And he made a difference. He made a huge difference. Tell us what Kobe played for. 
He played for primarily the New York Giants, the forerunner of the San Francisco Giants. So he batted in 1951 in the ninth inning, right before, a couple batters before, Bobby Thompson hit what even to this day people call the shot heard around the world, perhaps the most famous hit in baseball history. And my book is going to be called Monty Was There, The Historic Impact of Monty Irvin, because Monty was there. In that case, he made an out. He was made the only out of the ninth inning. He hit a foul pop-up and smashed his bat against the ground because he was so upset about it. But the next day, game one of the World Series, less than 24 hours later, he played against the New York Yankees and had four hits and stole home in the first inning. And Jackie Robinson, again, was famous for stealing home against Yogi Berra in the 1950, I forget if it was 55 or 56, I think it was 56 series. Yogi Berra, to the end of his life, swore that Jackie Robinson was out. But when Monty Irvin stole home, Yogi Berra admitted that Monty was safe. And Monty did it in 1951. But Monty Irvin was also there right next to Willie Mays when Willie Mays made the catch, the most famous catch in history against uh, off a shot by Vic Wirtz in the first game of the 1954 World Series against the Cleveland Indians. And Monty was in left field, uh, walking in, running in with Willie, where Willie said, hey, I had it all the way. That was the, that was the hit. It was not a hit. It was an out where Willie Mays is running directly away from home plate as fast as he can and catches the ball I don't know how he catches the ball, but catches the ball that comes over his head. He puts out his glove, and he catches it, and he does kind of make it look easy. That was the catch that every kid in America, myself included, practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced. Because he made a 50-yard sprint or something like that look effortless. And in fact, the more amazing part of that play that Mays made was that he pirouetted like a ballet dancer and on the full speed turned around and threw Threw a strike to second base and held Larry Doby, who could have easily scored from second base, which would have changed the entire tenor of that series. Duke Goldman, will you come home with me every night and talk to me when I'm falling asleep <laughs> because the dreams will be incredible. But I do want to, we only have a few minutes sure. left and I want to make sure that we, uh, that we, we do talk about um, the Negro Leagues and why we were talking about the major league recognition in 2020 of the Negro Leagues as major leagues. And you were saying, but they didn't prepare for it. Statistically, it's going to take a long time before they put up the statistics so that we can The statistics are up, but they're up on BaseballReference.com or Fangraphs. You can see them, but they're not official. And they're not going to be official for at least five years, if not ten. And I'll get into more of the details probably next month. But in the meanwhile, why is that a problem? The statistics are already out there, right? You might ask. And the answer that I have for that is, I'll say, Ron Teasley. Uh, and a few others, the remaining and family members like the great Norman Turkey Stearns, who's already in the Hall of Fame, his daughters, they want to see their dad um, recognized by officially by Major League Baseball. And Ron Teasley, who played in the Negro Leagues, is 95. And if it takes them five years or more to put those records into the official Major League Baseball database, he's not likely to be alive for that. They'll never see his name next to Lou Correct. Correct. So why do it that way? They could have prepared for this. They should have been preparing for this. And in fact, and we'll talk more about this, um, they were going to work with Seamheads.com, and Seamheads has a database that's in pretty good shape. And if they had worked it out with Seamheads, they might have been able to get this on board in two or three years, not five or six or seven or ten. And the fact is that they did not make an agreement with Seamheads. And now Major League Baseball is working with my organization, Sabre, with an entity called RetroSheet to 
um, get all the data into a proper format. And we'll talk again uh, about why the data is very messy and it takes a lot of work. And RetroSheet doesn't have all the data nearly that SeamHeads have. So why did they do this? Apparently, it's not because of money. SeamHeads wanted control over the data, and Major League Baseball said no. Duke Goldman, as a baseball historian, overall, do you think the quality of the play in the Negro Leagues was the equivalent of the quality of the play in the major leagues at the time we're, we're talking about, the, the contemporary times? Well, if I'm going to answer with one word, the word is no. It was not. And this is something I get into battles with over people. People want to believe it was. It was very close, I would say. And contemporaries said it was at the level of the top minor leagues. In fact, there was one minor league, the Pacific Coast League, that was at one point an open classification, which was, in essence, it was being said to be between top minor league and major league. Joe DiMaggio's league. Yes. And that's probably where it was. The stars were every bit as good as major league stars, but they lacked the depth that the white major leagues had. They also didn't have the equipment, the training, Correct. the coaching. Correct. They didn't have the, the, the time. They didn't have all of the... Nutrition. They lived in poverty a lot. Correct. And they were dealing with racism and, and not being able to get meals. They didn't have a level playing field. It wasn't fair. So they didn't have a fair opportunity to show all their talents. And despite and that, there were superstars. They were. Oh, the best players were the very best. Oscar Charleston, who was a forerunner of Willie Mays, my Sabre just put out a book called Five Tools about Willie Mays. Willie Mays was the five-tool player. Oscar Charleston was Willie Mays before there was Willie Mays. Hall of Famer, 1920 superstar. These guys were dynamic. They played a different game than the major leagues did, an exciting game. The five tools being? Um, hit, hit with power, run, field, and throw. Well, they, we call this segment Fair Play, and it's obvious why we do. At the intersection of fairness and social justice and sports, that's where, Duke Goldman, you reside. And uh, I'm telling you, I can't wait to read your book on Monday Irvin, but I can't wait to our next segment next month when we continue our conversation about major leagues, Negro leagues, and your research into Branch Rickey. Thank you. Our pleasure. We're going to be right back with former gubernatorial candidate, Professor Danielle Allen of Harvard and her new organization, Partners in Democracy. We'll be right back. Oh, and just like the river I've been running ever since, it's been a long, a long time coming. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Educators at Hampshire Regional Schools are taking action as contract negotiations drag on with the district. Teachers at Hampshire Regional High School in West Hampton are taking on a work-to-rule policy that started yesterday, where they work to the letter of their contracts and not a minute or favor more. They made the move when the school committee motioned to take negotiations to a moderator. Among the major sticking points for negotiations, limited salary increases, parental leave, and sick leave. The group of acting teachers will be back outside the high school today before the bell rings to continue to make their case. Safe Passage in Northampton is now closed. The nonprofit organization still plans to provide services and resources to violence survivors, but has decided to close their emergency shelter. Director Marianne Winters tells the Gazette one of the driving factors is the length of time people are staying at the shelter for, which is now 15 months versus the two to three months in the past. Winter says it's no longer a viable option to keep the shelter open. The organization has found housing for the families living there before shutting its doors. 
Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedegardner is calling the city council's decision to make cuts to various aspects of her proposed budget and send an extra $1.1 million toward the public school system, quote, reckless and irresponsible. There could have been some legitimate case made for a few hundred thousand dollars, but $1.1 million is um, basically ridiculous. The mayor is now challenging the city council's authority to reallocate the money, claiming that under a 1987 state law, the vote was illegitimate and requires mayoral approval. For today, look for a mixture of sunshine and clouds, highs 70 to 74. Tonight, mostly clear, overnight lows 44 to 48. And the only for Wednesday, sun and clouds, chance for afternoon showers, highs in the upper 70s. I'm 22 New Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. For the first time in the history of the country and of the history of the United States, the Supreme Court has taken away a constitutional right. I would also describe this day as a day when women in the United States and people who can become pregnant have become second-class citizens. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. Kia and Hyundai have agreed to a class action lawsuit settlement worth about $200 million over claims that many of the Korean automakers' cars are far too vulnerable to theft. The settlement covers some 9 million owners of vehicles made between 2011 and 2022. With rising household debt, some economists are worried that consumers are being forced to cut spending to make ends meet. A new Gallup poll shows Americans are increasingly concerned about the economy. The survey found 55% of consumers describe their financial situation as only fair. Wendy's is offering a treat for consumers at the start of the Memorial Day weekend. The fast food chain will sell its Junior Bacon Cheeseburger for one cent from May 26th through June 1st. Customers can only claim the one cent burger one time throughout the week. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome to our show. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And uh, we are just so pleased to have a Harvard professor of political philosophy and ethics and public policy and also the founder and president of Partners in Democracy Danielle Allen with us. Hello, Danielle. Good morning, Buzz. Good morning, Bill. It's great to be with both of you. Oh, it's so great to have you here. And we first met when you were a candidate for the Democratic nomination for governor. And um, we just uh, had nothing but uh, respect. I learned a lot during our conversations, and I expect that will continue. You have created this, had- or- yeah, this organization called Partners in Democracy, Danielle. Uh, you founded it. You're president of it. Um, I guess the first question is, in the United States, here in Massachusetts, is democracy healthy? Well, thanks so much, Buzz. I just wanted to say we did. We had such fun conversations uh, when I was on the campaign trail, so it's a real pleasure to be back again. 
is democracy healthy? You know, I think so many people have such a strong sense of frustration and disconnection that that is all the thermostat we need to know about whether our democracy is healthy. We are struggling right now. That said, I can say I come from generations of people who have loved and fought for democracy. So I know challenges have been seemingly insurmountable at other points in time. My granddad helped found one of the first NAACP chapters in Northern Florida in the 40s. Lynchings were on the rise at that point. So, you know, that really, I think, seemed like a time of difficulty. So I want to acknowledge that we've overcome hard things in the past and we do have challenges now for sure, but we have the capacity to overcome them. Love the optimism. How do we overcome it and why Partners in Democracy? What can it do to foment the kind of overcoming that you're talking about? Sure. Well, I think the really important thing to focus on is our democracy is like a house that we build together. It is a structure where we have representation, the purpose of which is to bring our voices, our collective voices into the public sphere and give us a chance to work together to steer the direction of our community. And over time, that house has just sort of ceased to really be fit for purpose. I mean, we are a much bigger society than we were. We're a lot more diverse. And then there's also the challenge that the house that we share together, our political institutions, it was never built for everybody, right? So in the very beginning, some got rooms with a view and others were sort of relegated to dank, oppressive rooms in the basement. So we have a lot of work to do to renovate our house that we share, our democracy for the 21st century. That's really the work that Partners of Democracy is about. I think of us as literally like contractors. You, know, you guys sort of take a look at your democracy, whether it's in Massachusetts or nationally, you have to ask questions about, you know, is the right to vote protected? Is the right to run and having competitive elections protected? And then also as a third thing, the right to see and shape your community protected, because it really takes all three things. The right to vote isn't enough if you don't have competitive elections and diverse candidates to choose from, but even that isn't enough if you can't see what your elected officials are doing once they're in office and you really have to have a healthy journalistic ecosystem, uh, understanding about what's happening with the money, campaign finance issues, and things like that. If we're going to have a system that's responsive um, to our actual needs and delivering for us as human beings. Well, let's talk about the right to run. Uh, talk about diversity. You were the first black woman, I believe, to run for statewide office in the history yep. of Massachusetts. Uh, I've got that right, right? Yep, you've got that right. Yeah. And... Okay. In that Proud of the fact that there were then others, right, in the race, too. So I want to sort of shout out um, Andrea Campbell, of course, who's now our attorney general, and Tanisha Sullivan. But I did, I was out there, you know, about a year ahead of the others. So, so in terms of the right to run, what can, what are some of the ideas that Partners in Democracy has in terms of promoting the ability for people of color to run? Well, it's important for folks to have awareness that here in Massachusetts, we actually have the most restrictive candidate ballot access procedures in the country. So when you look all around the country uh, and everywhere, every other state, it is easier to put your name on the ballot for state and federal office than it is in Massachusetts. So one really uh, powerful reform would be to follow the example that Alaska has just set. Um, Alaska got rid of party primaries, and instead of having party primaries, they have 
an all-comers preliminary. Um, people from all parties are on the same first round ballot. You get on the ballot just via signatures, um, and then you take forward from that first round ballot uh, a set of finalists. Um, in Alaska's case, four finalists. Um, and then you have an instant runoff in that final round. This electoral system brings a much bigger range of voices into the competitive process for the for the election. Wow, very creative. And by the way, how do people find out about Partners in Democracy and read about some of the things that we're talking about? So we've got a website. It's partnersindemocracy.us. So partnersindemocracy, all one word, .us. And if you visit our website, you can find a really terrific uh, health report card for the state of democracy in Massachusetts. And you'll see things, for example, like really uh, differences in representation between suburbs, um, affluent suburbs, and gateway cities. So in terms of who's voting in elections at the moment, our electorate is really skewed in the direction of affluent suburbs. I think then you look at problems we have in the Commonwealth, like housing, for instance, and it's not sort of surprising because at the end of the day, uh, people who rent are less well represented in our electorate in Massachusetts right now. So, Danielle, are you saying, in essence, that our feeling, our sense of Massachusetts as this bastion of democracy is misplaced? So, you know, I'm actually saying that we have a, a noble tradition and there's a lot that we have been getting right for sure, but we could be even healthier. And in these troubled times for our country, we could be a true beacon, a true example of what a healthy 21st century democracy is. And let me point to the experience of folks in Western Massachusetts. Um, I think folks in Western Mass are pretty well aware that it's harder for their candidates to break through at the statewide level. And one of the reasons is because of this restrictive candidate ballot access procedure that we have. So I'm thinking about Senator Adam Hines, for instance, um, who wasn't able to get his name on the ballot, you know, running for statewide office. Senator Hines should have been on the ballot for sure. Um, and the kind of reforms we're talking about would enable people in Western Mass to have access to that ballot and be able to run for statewide office. I was astonished to read from your website some of some of these statistics that Massachusetts is uh, 41st in the country for monetary competitiveness of candidates, 48th in the country for the gap between white and BIPOC turnout, 50th in the country for state legislators, uh, legislature effectiveness, 50th in the country for competitiveness of our elections and for African-American voter registration, 50th in the country. This is a shock to me to read this. I'm sure it is for a lot of people who are progressives in Massachusetts and think if only the rest of the country would be more like us, we'll be in good shape. Well, I'll tell you the truth. I mean, for me, this was partly a learning of being on the campaign trail. So, for example, I knew before I started running that there was a real sense, a meaningful sense of alienation and frustration among African-American communities in the Commonwealth. All you have to do is sort of look at some of the recent reports, for example, the Boston Fed put out about the racial wealth gap in Massachusetts to, to know that there's a real source for that. And I was surprised on the trail that that disaffection and disconnection was even deeper than I had anticipated. Um, so the work of you know, bringing people back into participation, having confidence that our institutions are really for everybody, um, is we have a serious road ahead of us on that front. 
Daniel Allen, I want to ask you about uh, some of the legislative agenda items which are on your website. Passing a local option bill to allow communities to adopt municipal voting rules of their choice, such as ranked choice voting, without requiring permission from the state. We are all locked into, well, what does the state allow us to do as a municipality? Uh, could, you, could you elaborate on that, how a local option to break away from the state requirements might work? Sure. So right now uh, in the state, if a city or town wants to use ranked choice voting, for example, then they can go through their processes, town meeting or city council decision and the like, and come to the vote that that's what they want, but then they have to submit a petition to the state legislature to get approval for that. Amherst, for instance, um, decided that it wanted ranked choice voting uh, last year and submitted a petition to the state legislature. Concord is another municipality that has done that. Um, but the legislature has been sitting on those home rule petitions. They haven't moved forward at all. That's an example of that effectiveness indicator for the legislature, that the legislature is just not responding to things that communities directly say that they want. So we could, for example, follow the model of Virginia where they passed um, at the level sort of statewide um, a law that uh, for this issue of election rules, municipalities can go ahead and make their own choices and don't need to submit a home rule petition. Could you explain the home rule petition problem with regard to ranked choice voting? Because East Hampton got it done. And why should it be so difficult for other uh, municipalities to follow in that, down that path? Well, so folks have been getting it done at the local level, but in the last session, those petitions that went to the legislature just sat for the whole session. Uh, they didn't move out of committee. They didn't move forward. So they have just now reintroduced them. But again, uh, no signs indicating that there is forward movement coming from the legislature. Um, you know, I think we are all left to speculate about why is it exactly that the legislature is not responsive um, to municipalities on this point. I wish I had an answer for you, Bill. Oh, I have, a, I have a, a possible answer, which is they're just beleaguered with so many home rule requests. I can tell you that I live in the small town of Ashfield, Massachusetts, and we voted 10, 12 years ago to finally call it a select board instead of board of selectmen because we had women for the last 30 years, 40 years serving on our board. We thought that we got it done. We, we had a unanimous vote at a town meeting, at the annual town meeting. And so we called it the select board until we found out it required legislative home rule action. Our representative at the time made that motion a number of times, but they just didn't get around to it because they were doing so much else and had such mm -hmm. limited time in the legislature. So part of it, I think, is just that we have 351 cities and towns. But you're suggesting a state law that says municipalities you can determine how you elect your officials. That's right. I mean, I think the legislature could establish some broad parameters, right, of what the realm of the acceptable is, but then not need to approve every single change that's made. Would your bill encompass the right of 16-year-olds to vote in municipal elections? Because Northampton has its own rule petition again this session. It failed to move last session. At the same time, there was a uh, statewide proposal that was filed as legislation as well to allow municipalities, all municipalities to allow 16-year-olds and older to vote in municipal elections. Would your legislation encompass that as well? 
So that's definitely another item on the table for discussion. So Bill, one of the things we're doing is running deliberations around the Commonwealth in a diverse array of communities all across the Commonwealth. And the reason we're doing that is precisely to sort of be able to say, here are the different solutions that are on the table. Let's come together. Let's have Commonwealth conversations to prioritize among those solutions. So it seems to me entirely possible that that's a solution that people could uh, build up energy for. And that's where we're doing the work. To, could you, could you clarify one thing for us, if you would, please? Your proposal would be to allow municipalities to make their own rules, not to impose rules on the municipalities. Am I right about that? Correct. It would be to empower municipalities as decision makers. Yeah. This is just so interesting. We uh, we uh, have Daniel Allen, the founder and president of Partners in Democracy. We're learning more about Partners in Democracy, and um, we have a an ill democracy. But the prognosis from Daniel Allen is it's not fatal. We're going to be back and talk more about Partners in Democracy with Daniel Allen right after these messages. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3 right here on WHMP. 1415-1400-1240 WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. I chose community mental health to serve populations that are often underserved. Megan is a therapist at ServiceNet. One core value at ServiceNet is to continue to learn, to really strive for the most effective treatment. If you're looking for a strong sense of community and collaboration, come to ServiceNet. If you're a licensed mental health clinician who wants to make your own hours while also being part of a progressive community mental health team, join us at ServiceNet. Go to the employment page at servicenet.org. Does your partner threaten or isolate you? Do they control where you go, who you talk to, or what choices you make? Are you afraid of what they might do? You have the right to a healthy and safe relationship. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, physical, Safe Passage is here for you. It's all free and completely confidential. Call our helpline to explore your options and plan for safety. That's 413-586-5066, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Or visit safepass.org today. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And we are back with Harvard professor of political philosophy, uh, Daniel Allen, and the founder and president of Partners in Democracy. And during the break, Danielle, the three of us, Dan and Bill and I, uh, 
you, our conversation with you inspired all kinds of things we'd like to talk about with you. And I think the fairest, and you heard what we were talking about. So I just want to mention, when you go to the website of Partners in Democracy, you see that uh, it uses a 360-degree standard for a healthy democracy. It deals with voter registration and and how to promote that. It deals with so many things that we were just talking about during the break. So could you explain what that is and address some of the things we were just talking about, including parties in Massachusetts? Sure, happy, happy to jump in. So the 360 degree standard for a healthy democracy is a way of sort of evaluating, you know, what is the health of a democracy? And you gotta look at three things, the right to vote. First of all, that's the cornerstone of our democracy. But the right to vote doesn't get you anything if you don't have competitive elections. You've got to have choices. So there's also a right to run. You guys sort of really study are our elections competitive, and if not, why not? What can we do about that? But then again, the third piece of it is this issue of the right to see and shape your community. You may have competitive elections, but if you elect people and you can't see what they're doing in the legislature and you don't understand what's happening, for example, with those home rule petitions we were talking about, um, then you don't really have a right to see and shape your community. So we're looking at places where we could be stronger in all three of those buckets. Um, that's the, the sort of real concept there with a 360 degree standard. Um, I wanna say something about independence for a moment because you asked me about that in the break and then something about parties. Um, so the experience of unenrolled voters in Massachusetts is really interesting right now. 61% of voters are not enrolled in a party. So de facto, they actually can't run for office right now. What do I mean by saying that? Um, they can't run in a primary. They can only run in the general election. And the truth of the matter is that the way media coverage works for a campaign, if you miss out that primary moment, you can't really make up the ground for name recognition and you just don't have a meaningful chance in the general election. So we actually have a constitutional right in our state constitution to run for office not just the right to vote, but also a right to run for office. And so right now, people who are unenrolled just don't have access to that right. So the electoral reform that we were talking about before, the top five system or the top four system, would make it possible for independents to run, to be on the ballot in that preliminary round and have the same access to media exposure as uh, candidates uh, coming out of a party. So you might well ask, Maybe, Bill, you're about to ask, well, what would parties think about all this? Is that what you were going to ask, Bill? Yeah, and along with, would, in fact, the part, would you advocate for eliminating all partisan primaries in all for all offices across the Commonwealth? So I am advocating for eliminating all partisan primaries, but I want to be real clear. I'm not advocating for eliminating parties. And I don't even think that this actually does weaken parties. I think this is actually a way of strengthening parties. And so let me explain that. So, you know, it's true in my own run for office, I was frustrated by the ballot access, the candidate ballot access requirements. But I also saw a really impressive grassroots infrastructure. And I had so much fun and I so enjoyed it that I'm now chair of my ward committee here in Cambridge. Okay, so I'm signed up. I'm, I'm part of the party process and I'm happy to be pitching in. But I do believe that the parties should be competing for the whole electorate. You know, the Democratic Party is currently at 29% of registered voters. And honestly, we should be competing for the supermajority of voters in the Commonwealth to get them to sign up. And so in that regard, um, I do think uh, a context in which parties, um, you know, they can still have conventions, they can endorse a candidate going on that first round ballot. So you don't have to get rid of any of that. 
But when they do that work, they have to know all the way through that what they're trying to do is compete uh, for the majority of voters from the whole electorate. I think that would be really healthy for our democracy. Is the linchpin of this ranked choice voting? Um, it's not the linchpin. It's just one element of it. So I think this is a challenge, honestly, with the democracy um, renovation space. Often people sort of think there's this silver bullet or that silver bullet. That's why we are really focused on this holistic 360 degree standard. It's more like, you know, or I come back to the sort of home renovation metaphor. We've got a house. We've got to renovate it for the next generation of work. We've got a toolbox. Our toolbox has in it ranked choice voting that applies in some places. Uh, it's got in it, you know, sort of questions of how you reform candidate ballot access. That's another kind of tool. So in this um, electoral system, the really important part is shifting from partisan primaries to an all comers preliminary a la Springfield mayor's race or Boston mayor's race. And that first moment of voting is plurality, top vote getters move forward. And then in the final round, uh, you would use ranked choice voting. I get. I wish we weren't running out of time, but in fact, we only have a couple of minutes left, Danielle Allen. So I, I guess what I want to ask is, number one, why did you create a new organization in Partners in Democracy? And number two, if listeners want to get involved in Partners in Democracy, what, how can they? So listeners can get involved by visiting our website, partnersindemocracy.us. Um, and please sign up. Uh, we need volunteers. We need donors. We need... As the folks always say, time, treasure, and talent. Uh, so we would welcome people uh, in all kinds of ways. I am from generations of people who have loved and fought for democracy. And I'm from people, I mentioned my granddad who founded um, a chapter of the NAACP in Northern Florida. My great grandparents on my mom's side helped fight for women's right to vote. So these are people who when others said things were impossible, you know, African-American social equality, women gave the right to vote. Their answer was, it's necessary. The only question is how we're going to get it done. That's how I feel about a healthy 21st century democracy that we deserve. Uh, it's necessary. We've got to make room for all of us in this democracy. And the only question is how we get it done. We have been speaking with uh, Danielle Allen. She is the founder and president of Partners in Democracy. You can connect with her and her organization at Partners in Democracy dot us looking for people who are volunteers people who will donate and people who will work Bill. i have a last question please do you have any plans to run for office again i don't this is my work bill this is my work and chairing my ward committee in cambridge you know that's my elected office well you know i i wish i was younger i'd uh, i'd try to audit your class because uh, your, your your notion of political philosophy. We can also talk about ethics. I think we're going to have to invite you back as uh, election season gets hotter. Would you be willing to come to once again to, to talk to our listeners? I would love to, Buzz. It would be great. And you should audit my class. You can audit my class anyway. I have all sorts of folks, oh my all gosh. generations auditing my class. So uh, come along. Have a I good time. It. Daniel Allen, Partners in Democracy, and thank you all for joining us on Talk to Talk. Remember, like Daniel Allen, walk the walk. Looking to take a little breather from the news? We don't blame you. Why don't you turn the dial over to our pure oldie station? I'm walking, yeah, the end I'm talking. It's the I music you grew me, up with. Then you come back to me. 
HMP and the News will be right here when you get back. The Valley's Pure Oldies, 96.9 and 100.5. Does your partner threaten or isolate you? Do they control where you go, who you talk to, or what choices you make? Are you afraid of what they might do? You have the right to a healthy and safe relationship. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, physical, Safe Passage is here for you. It's all free and completely confidential. Call our helpline to explore your options and plan for safety. That's 413-586-5066, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Or visit safepass.org today. <laughs> 